you're a guest or a visitor, welcome to our church. We're glad that you come to worship with us. I'm inviting you now to pull out your Bible and get ready to be in the Word together. If you don't have a Bible or you didn't bring a Bible, just slip up your hand and there are ushers already in the aisles. I want you to have a Bible there. I'm also going to ask you today to pull out your bulletin and you're going to need something to write with because I'm going to be giving some things to you today that I need you to write down and take home with you. So you'll want to be able to take notes Last Sunday was a very significant day in the life of our church. And I'm trying to learn how as a Christian to not just blow past moments like this and sort of keep going, but to actually slow down for a second and just acknowledge moments in our church when God seems to be doing something really big. And last Sunday was one of those moments. So we had like this overwhelming response of prayer here last Sunday. We had people come up for prayer um, and there were people who got healed from sickness that they've been carrying for years. We had people come to faith in Christ. We had people who experienced uh, reconciliation and relationships that have been broken. It was really really significant, sort of like a high water mark in the life of our church. I had been talking about an element of revival that Jonathan Edwards called extraordinary prayer. And what I talked about was that in the life of a church, there can be two kinds of prayer. There can be what we might call maintenance prayer, which is really good. And it's where we pray for one another and pray for needs and pray for things and that's really good. But there's another kind of prayer where it's a prayer where your, your heart is uplifted and you're seeking God for more of his glory. And you're praying for that for yourself and for your community and for your church. And when we pray like that, things begin to happen. And what happened last Sunday was we saw the Lord beginning to answer that prayer. And it was really powerful. And what I don't want to do is let a moment like that go by or just put my foot to the gas pedal and drive off and not acknowledge that that happened. There were people who were here last Sunday who sensed, I'm supposed to go forward and pray. I know I need this. This is what God's telling me. And maybe for some reason that just felt really scary. And so you sort of slipped out the back door. And what I want to tell you is you get a second chance today because we're a church of second chances. And so the prayer teams will be over there right after my message during communion. Please don't let the opportunity go to come and get some prayer. Amen? Amen? Last Sunday, I shared something that the Lord's been pressing on my heart for our church. Something about what I think God's taking us into in the next year and a half. And the reality is I cannot go back and recap that. So what I need to ask you to do is if you missed last Sunday, I want you to go online and listen to that podcast so that you know where we're at and why and where we're headed, okay? We're going to enter into a series here where we're going to preach through the gospel of Luke. But I, what I said last week is we're not ready to start that series. That series begins two Sundays from today, but we need to get ready, and God wants our church to get ready for that series. And so we've been spending some time in this little verse in the book of 1 Peter where Peter basically says to a group of Christians, God is about to do something massive. And what I'm asking you to do, brother or sister in Christ, is I'm asking you to get ready for it. 
It's in 1 Peter chapter 3. Will you turn there now with me? Open your Bible. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you about the most bizarre movie that I saw as a child. (sighs) My father made me watch a movie that had the most bizarre plot of any movie I've ever seen. This was a Kevin Costner movie, okay? So bizarre. It was not the worst Kevin Costner movie I've ever seen. There's stiff competition in that category. This was just the most bizarre one, all right? One of those movies where you look back later and you're like, how in the world did that make it to the box office? But it did. I'm going to read to you the plot synopsis, and the first person who can guess it, you can take home that Bible we just gave you, all right? (laughs) Listen closely. When Iowa farmer Ray hears a mysterious voice, there it is. Yeah, field of dreams. You got it. Good. Field of dreams. What? And I'm treading on toes here because some of you love this movie, but okay, just listen to this plot as if you've never seen this movie. When he hears a mysterious voice one night in the cornfield saying, you know what he said, if you build it, he will come. He feels the need to act. And despite taunts of lunacy, He knows immediately that he's supposed to till up his cornfield and build a baseball diamond in the middle of Iowa. So with the support of his wife, he does this. Afterwards, the ghosts of great baseball players from the past start emerging from the crops to play ball, led by shoeless Joe Jackson and the entire roster of the 1910 Chicago White Sox. But as Ray learns, this field of dreams is about much more than bringing former baseball greats out to play. And it becomes the story of redemption and his broken relationship with his father. And it's amazing, right? And it's bizarre, (laughs) okay? It's weird. And I have to admit, though, that right at the beginning is this iconic phrase, right? What is the phrase? If you build it, he will come, right? Please take that picture down, okay? Thank you. We're done with that. I got to admit that hidden in that funny little phrase that we get from Kevin Costner, there's actually a truth in there. It's actually a really profound truth. And the truth goes like this. Sometimes God will ask you to step out in faith and get ready for something well before he even gives you a glimpse or a clue of what that thing is that you're going to walk into. Sometimes God, because he's sovereign, will ask you to step out in faith and start getting ready for something. And you have no idea what it is. You have no idea what it is. And sometimes if you, if you are not ready, you may miss an opportunity that blows you by simply because you weren't prepared for it. That's what 1 Peter 3.15 is about. Will you look at it again with me? Peter can say it a lot better than Kevin Costner, all right? And I'm glad he did. Here's what it says. Now in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared, there it is. Ready, always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter writes to this church, you know, it was, it was a church in, in the ancient times. It was probably a lot like River West, only smaller, maybe. But it was a group of believers, and what Peter said to them is, 
you need to get ready. The word that Peter uses is, I talked about this last Sunday, it's a word that describes someone who's ready because they've made some preparations in their lives. They've actually done some things to be ready. And so I use the illustration of a sprinter and she's, she's down in the blocks and she's ready for the gun to go off. And the reason she's ready is because she's prepared. She has sacrificed countless hours, blood, sweat, tears, all to be ready for that one moment when the gun goes off and she runs her race. And Peter says, now what I want to say to you, brother, sister, is I want you to ask the question, are you ready? Are you ready for that moment when someone would ask you to give an explanation for the hope that's in you, your Christian hope? Are you ready for that? Would you be ready? Imagine you walked out these doors and you were at lunch and someone walked up and said, can I talk to you for 15 minutes? Will you explain to me your Christian hope? Why are you a Christian? Now, some of you say, that is literally one of my biggest fears of my entire life. I am so afraid of something like that. And I get it. I get it. Some of you go, I know I'm not ready. Can I, just, can I just tell you, if you're not ready today, that's not the end of the world. What would be the end of the world is if you walked out of here and you didn't do anything to change your circumstances. Because God says, you need to get ready. You need to get ready. And I want to encourage you this morning. My sermon this morning is really, really practical. In fact, in a moment, I'm going to give you seven practical suggestions, seven things that you can do to be ready. And I'm going to have you write those down. But before I do that, what I need to do is I need to make a couple of observations about this verse. We look at it again in your Bible. Look what Peter says. He says, in your heart, set apart Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Okay, here's three things I want you to notice. Number one, and you might want to write this down too. The Christian faith is reasonable. It's reasonable. And what I mean by that is Peter is making an assumption here, and I'm not sure every Christian makes this assumption, and the assumption is this. Christianity is a faith system that is rational, it's logical, and it can be explained. We look closely at that statement. Do you know what I've done with that statement? I've taken two words and I've intentionally set them next to each other. The words are faith and reason. And here's why I've done that. I did this on purpose. And the reason I did this is because it's been my experience that many Christians have been influenced in our culture to drive a wedge between those two concepts. We're almost encouraged to think of faith and reason as two completely different sort of categories. There's things that I know through reason, through my cognitive faculties, through rational thinking, but then there are things that I only know through faith and they have nothing to do with rationality. And if we're not careful, we're subtly influenced by our culture to think that way. Why might that be? I suspect there's a couple reasons. The number one reason is this. I think the way that in our culture people use the word faith, it wears off on us. So if you went downtown and you interviewed people and you said, what do you think faith means? I think you'd get one of two answers almost always. The first one is that faith is a synonym for religion. 
People would say, yeah, faith is just, it's, it's religion, so there's many faiths. There's many religions, so there's, there's many faiths, right? But, but the more common one is this. If you ask people, what do you think faith is? Here's what faith means in our culture. It means a personal, subjective, religious choice. Let me say that again. Faith means a personal, subjective, religious choice. That's what our culture says, right? So it's got nothing to do with truth. It's a personal, subjective, religious choice. You've got your Jesus. Great, I've got Buddha. You believe in the creator God? Wonderful. I believe in Allah or Mother Nature or something else. You believe in grace? More power to you. I believe in karma or I believe in the force. I believe in Yoda. You see what I'm saying? You could believe in all kinds of things because faith is just a personal, subjective, religious choice. Nothing to do with truth. Have you ever had, have you ever heard this statement in our world? I'm totally fine with your Christian faith as long as you don't bring it into the public square. I'm totally fine with it. You can believe that because it's personal and subjective and it's your religious. Just don't bring that into the public realm. And the assumption is that some truths are just based on pure fact and they're empirical and some truths are based on faith, which is just personal. Here's the problem with that. River West, not once in the Bible does God ever ask a Christian to believe something that's not true. Not once. Not once does the Bible ask a Christian to believe something that might only possibly be true. Not once does the Bible even ask a Christian to believe something that is likely to be true. The Bible says, by God's grace, believe things that are absolutely true. But we believe them through God's gift of faith. Amen. Amen. And the problem is, if we, if, we, if we get subjected to this way of thinking, we, we'll never get ready. Peter, look what the words Peter uses here. He's talking about a Christian who's ready to talk about their Christian faith using reason. That word reason. Give a reason for the hope. That's just the word logic. It's the word logos. And the word defense is, also has the word logic in it. It's apologia. That's the word apologetics. Okay? Apologetics doesn't mean we're apologizing for Christianity. It's not what it means. It means we're actually defending it with rationality and sound reasoning. And Peter says, I dream of a day when Christians are prepared to, to do that, to defend faith, to talk about it in a rational way. Amazing. You probably heard this famous story. It's one of my favorites. It's a story about Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens was a very famous atheist. He was brilliant. He passed away of cancer about 10 years ago. But the story is that he was in Portland having a debate down at Portland State. And in this debate, he was debating with a philosopher of religion. And she described herself as a liberal, a more liberal Christian. And here's what happened in the debate. I've got the transcript here. She said to him, the religion that you cite in your books is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories of the scripture literally. 
I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Now, here's what Christopher Hitchens said to her. He said, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, I would say that you're not really in any meaningful sense a Christian. <gasps> and it took an atheist to point it out, okay? That's not good. But can I tell you something? That is what happens if we start believing the cultural influence that says there's a difference between faith and reason. And so Peter very lovingly says, you got to get ready. And one of the first things you got to do is recognize Christianity is rational. It can be defended. It can be explained and it can be done so in the public square. Amen. But I have to get ready to do it. If I don't believe that, I'll never get ready to do it. That's number one. Here's number two. The Christian faith is reasonable, but also the Christian life is unusual. It's unusual. What I mean by that is Peter is assuming that a follower of Jesus is living out her Christian life in such a way that people are noticing it. And so they're asking her, give me a reason for the hope that's in you. This is wonderful. Peter, Peter assumed this was happening. He assumed that Christians would constantly find themselves in settings in our culture where because they love Jesus, they would, they would take a different road than other people around them. So perhaps one, one reason this might happen is if you're, if you're in a context where there's a lot of hopelessness, you live with hope. There's, just, there's like this hope about the way you live. I know believers in our church who are suffering immensely. And, and, and whereas the world, people in the world would say, just this, this is hopeless. They, they live with this eternal sense of hope that they carry, right? Isn't that beautiful? Don't waste your suffering, by the way. Or, you li- or you're in an environment that's malicious at work where people are devouring one another and you say, I, I'm going to take the high road. I'm going to take the road of humility or grace. Or you're, or you're in a situation where there's lots of arrogance and you'd say, because I love Jesus, I'm going to take a road of humility. And what happens, it's happened to you. I know it. It's happened where people are like, what is your deal? What in the world, right? Now, I've heard recently people say this doesn't happen anymore. We're in a post-Christian world. Nobody cares. No one's asking Christians. And I just want to tell you that's completely false. It's totally overbaked. It just happened to my family. We, over the last three months, we have had the immense privilege of getting to know a young man named Simon. This is an incredible story about our church. This young man, Simon, the first time I met him, I met him in April when he showed up at my front door to take my daughter to the senior prom. And I was not happy about this, okay? <laughs> and I looked at Simon, he's really tall. He's going into the Navy, you know, and he's and he's big guy. And when he stuck out his hand, he was trembling and there was, he was sweating. And I was like, this is a good start. He's really freaked out. He's nervous. Okay. It's a good start. Simon, never been to church, never stepped foot in a church. He goes to prom that ended quickly. Praise the Lord. But anyway, then, then he and Lauren became friends and he, and he, Lauren invited him over and he hung out one night with the youth group. They were having a game night. And he texted me last night. We were texting 
and he was telling me about his experiences. And he said, he goes, I, I don't even have the categories to explain how loving that group of people was towards one another. And it was totally genuine. So he told me, when Lauren invited me to church, I was like, absolutely, I will come. I, I cannot wait. And he came and he visited church. And when he left church, he, he turned to Lauren. And he was like, that was like 100% not what I expected it to be in a good way. Okay. This is a positive story. In a good way. It happens all the time. Last week, Simon asked Pastor Jeff if Jeff would baptize him. Amen? Amen? Now I'll ask you, why did that happen? Well, one of the reasons that it happened is because Simon started rubbing shoulders with Christian people who look different. And let me be honest with you, River West, this is going to be costly for you. There are going to be situations where it is going to be hard to live a different way. You're going to have to make sacrifices. You're going to have to be uncomfortable. I'm going to talk about that more at the end. Will it be worth it? I think so. The Christian life is unusual. The Christian faith is reasonable. Do you believe that? The Christian life is unusual. Are you living into that? And then here's one more. The Christian witness is remarkable. Or it ought to be. It ought to be remarkable. And all I mean by that is that Peter is assuming that when a Christian is sharing her faith with someone, she does it in a way that's remarkably Christ-like. That's why he uses the words, if you look at them in your Bible, he uses these words. He says, do this with what? Look at that last line. You're sharing your faith. How do you, what, what's your attitude? What's your posture? What's your demeanor? Gentleness and respect. Well, why would he pick those words? Because those are Christ words. I think Peter's saying, look, if you're in a situation where you're in a conversation with an unbeliever and it starts to get a little bit frustrating or heated or argumentative, which maybe sometimes it will get that way. If you start to become defensive or even angry or frustrated and you're, and you're going and you're trying to now win the argument, that's no longer Christian witness because it's no longer actually holding up the very person of Jesus Christ with whom we want to convince someone of right? Amen. I've never met anyone who came to Christ because they lost the argument, by the way. doesn't happen. Oh, I lost that debate. I'll become a Christian. That's not how it works, right? People come to Christ because as, as they're hearing about the Christian faith, they're going, this person's so gentle and I can tell they love me. I heard an amazing story last year. We were at a conference and it was a conference where there were a bunch of different speakers, and, but the one that impacted me the most was a man who told this story of conversion. His name was David Nasser, and he grew up in Iran. And his parents fled Iran because of religious persecution. The Ayatollah Khomeini was wreaking havoc. A million Iranians were murdered. And the way he describes his beginning, the beginning of his life is he describes his life as trying to get as far away from religion as he could possibly get. He goes, I saw what religion did in my home country. So they came to the United States. And he's growing up in the United States, some small town in the Midwest. And one day, 
right around his senior year, this friend of his says, hey, come to church with me, David. And he's like, no way. I've done the religion thing. I know what religion is. And the guy's like, no, 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 no. I, I, this is different. Just, just check it out. And then this guy started telling him about all the different kids that go to the church, all the boys. And then he started listing some of the girls, you know. And he's like, you know, Cindy, she goes. And he's like, Cindy, what time's your service at? Okay, I'll be there. You know, and he came. He came to church. And you know what he experienced? He's telling the story. And my heart was so gripped. He's like, I walked in there and it was totally not what I expected. People weren't talking about rules or they kept talking about grace. And they kept talking about how much Jesus has forgiven them and how powerful it is to have a relationship with Christ. And I realized I had a view of religion that was completely not what Christianity is. And he sat in a service where the preacher preached the gospel boldly. He lifted up the truth that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God who left all of, the, all, of the, all of the amazing things about heaven to humbly of his own accord enter into our world, to squeeze himself into frail humanity and to die for human sin and rise again. And David said, I was hearing the gospel and I wanted to run. I I knew this is a word for me, but I was so scared. And you know what he did? They had an altar call and people started coming forward and David booked out the back door. But this is a good story too. This has a positive ending, I promise you. He went home, he sat down and he pulled out a Bible that one of the kids had given him from the youth group. And he opened up to the story of Peter where Jesus said, Peter, I'm asking you to step out of the boat. Take a, take a risk. I need you to take a risk, Peter. Step out. And David knew this is God's word to my heart. And he dropped to his knees. And he committed his life to Jesus Christ. Amazing. And I was hearing a story and I thought, what kind of a church impacts people like that? What kind of a church? I'll tell you what kind of church it is. A church where people have gotten ready. They're ready. And not just five of them, not just 10 of them, but 450 ready. Ready to invite someone, ready to give someone a Bible, ready to see someone as they walk through the door and go, I think that person feels uncomfortable. So I'm going to go say hello. Ready to walk alongside someone and maybe invite them to lunch. Ready to talk to a neighbor or a friend or a coworker. How about you? Are you ready? Peter said, part of being ready is a, it's a heart thing. I touched my head, but it's actually down here. Part of being ready is a heart thing. You got to set apart Christ as Lord. But there's another part. It's a head thing. Are you ready? So let me give you seven things. And I'm going to do these fast. Seven things. You're not going to be able to do all these I mean, if you did, you'd become the most amazing evangelist of all time. But anyway, seven practical things. Pick one a month and do it. But before you leave, make a commitment. I'm going to do one of these things. Very simple. These are super practical. Here's number one. Write out your gospel story. Write it out. Sometimes you, you know that there's a story of what Jesus has done or is doing in your life, but you've never just sat down and said, 
I got to write this down so I can get it organized and make it succinct and really connect. Like, I know, Jesus, you've changed my life, but now I want to learn how to write out the story so that if someone were to ask me, I could tell them the story, I'd be ready. And we want to make it easy for you. So we created a little document that I'm going to have out there in the foyer called, this is really innovative, all right, how to write your story, okay? (laughs) Because we want to be clear what this is, okay? This is how to write your gospel story. And what you could do is you could go home, grab this, go home and, and, and write it out and then call your community group leader or your Bible study leader or pastor and say, can I try this out on you? Help me think this through and you'll be ready. People love hearing stories, right? And I can guarantee you that if you're in a relationship with someone who is a seeker or they're not quite sure what to think of Christianity and you started talking with great authenticity, here's what Jesus is doing in my life. People will go, wow, that, that's compelling to me. Look, this person, you can never argue with someone's story. She so say, Jesus has changed me. He's the hero of my story, right? He's the hero. Write out your story. That's number one. Was that complex? No. Okay. Here's number two. Take a class. Take a class. In fact, I'm going to give you three that you can sign up for today. We offer all kinds of classes because we want to bless you and we want to equip you. We want our church to be ready. So right now we're offering a class called I'm Glad You Asked. And it's based on a book called I'm Glad You Asked. We're very straightforward here at River West, okay? And this book and this class, it's a, it's a, it's a class where you, in community, you learn how to talk about some of those topics that are uncomfortable, Believers ask questions, and that can be intimidating, and maybe you're not ready to answer some of those questions. How, what a better place to learn how to stay in the thick of it, even when you're being asked difficult questions. Take this class. I promise you, you will love it. We're offering a class out there called Cojourners. The premise of Cojourners is that everyone's on a spiritual journey, and if, by God's grace, you might be invited to be a part of that journey with them. And it doesn't mean you have to be integral to every part of their journey. Maybe you're just there for a moment to ask them a question about their life or to pray with them or take them to lunch. And so Cojourners teach you, teaches you really simple things just about how to walk with someone as they're on a spiritual journey, how to share your faith in an authentic way. Taught by some amazing folks, leaders in our church that are here today. Go out, sign up for Cojourners or sign up for the gospel class, which is out there. The gospel class is we ask everyone in our church to take it You just learn about the beauty, the intricate detail of the gospel. Okay? So write out your story. Take a class. Here's number three. Read a book. Read a book. Remember those? They're made with paper. Remember books? Books. Read a book. Okay? There are some amazing books that have been written. You say, Pastor, I don't know what to read. Well, let me just hand it. Things here. I, I'm not going to tell you about all these, but I'm excited about them. I've got some. I'm going to put a bunch out there for you to look at. Don't lift them. Don't take them. This is church, all right? But you could go out there and you could say, I'm not sure what to read. And I, I've put like 
15 books out there from everything from basic like evangelism, how to, how to share your faith to really technical books about apologetics. Maybe you're ready to go to a deeper level on apologetics. I've got some books about, out there about how to talk to people about so many of the issues right now in our culture around human identity, human sexuality. There's some amazing books that have been written. Just pick one this month and read it, all right? You go out there, you take your phone, you take a picture of it, your phone will probably order it on Amazon without your permission, all right? That's technology today. Go read a book. I'm being most sincere. Now listen, this, I'm being absolutely sincere. What would happen if every single person in our church read a really good book that helped you get ready this month? Think about the impact of that. It would be amazing. It would be amazing. They have them on tape too, by the way. Books on tape is a great thing. Okay, read a book. Here's another one. Master the answer to a tough question. So all these questions people are asking. And you know, you already know a lot of them. Questions like, how can, how can you believe in a good God in a world with such unbelievable suffering? How do you possibly hold those two things together? And sometimes we hear that question and we're like, I will get back to you, <laughs> right? Because we don't know what to say. Or how about this? How can you believe in a book that was written thousands of years ago? Or isn't the Bible full of all kinds of like inconsistencies and contradictions? How can you believe in that book? And, and we hear questions like that and it's very intimidating. And, but that's why I'm, there are really, really great answers to a lot of these questions. Christian philosophers and apologists have spent hours devoted to equipping Christian people to respond to questions like that. Really solid answers. You could pick one. Think of that friend or that neighbor and what they're wrestling with and say, I'm going to get ready because I just have a feeling I'm going to get asked this, you know? And you think, ah, that's, that's, too, that's too much for me. Look, at, I know some of you, you guys have mastered the weirdest stuff. In your, you know things about like the BCS college football formula. You've like mastered weird, useless information, right? And all I'm saying is take that now to another topic and say, I'm going to figure out an, how to answer this question. I've mastered, you know, the stock exchange. Now I'm going to master something about Christianity, you know. Amen? It's, it's not that complicated, and, and we're here to help you. Email a pastor, get some resources, get some help. Master tough question. Here's one that I'm going to call everyone in our church to do this year. Invite someone to your home. I want you to invite someone into your home. Okay? Invite them for dinner. Invite them for coffee. Invite them for dessert. And here's why. I'm going to go back to the story of Simon. The thing you want to know about Simon is he'd never stepped foot into a church. He wasn't even, he didn't even have the categories really to understand Christianity. He sent me a text and he was like, I thought I knew what love was. And then I got invited into people's homes and I started getting this other definition of love. I was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea what love was. 
what happens is we're living in a culture where people, as a, in a post-Christian world, people are so distant from Christianity that Christianity just seems completely implausible to them. You could tell someone that a flying saucer landed in your backyard and it would be more plausible to them than that Jesus died for their sins, right? And so what you do is you actually invite them into your home first and then what happens is they sit in your living room and they watch the way that you love your spouse or the way you talk to your children. Now, you got to be on your best behavior in this moment, okay? I mean, it matters. Go back to point two. Anyway, you have to be living out your Christian faith, and what happens is people enter into that, a neighbor or a friend or a coworker. You've not even started talking about your Christian faith, but they're watching your life, and suddenly the reality of the love of Jesus Christ becomes increasingly more plausible to them. Amen? And then you invite them, hey, come to our come to church with me. I'd love to have you come to church. Invite people to your home. Here's one. I'll do this fast. This is number six. Learn how to ask thoughtful questions. And all I mean by this is the power of really great questions. Jesus was amazing. He asked people questions all the time. And then he really listened for the answer. When's the last time you were in a conversation with someone who's not a Christian and you said something like this? Tell me about your childhood. Was there any spirituality in your childhood? And then you just listened to them. And you really were attentive to their life, their past. Or maybe a question like, have you ever had an experience with the church and was it positive or negative? I'd love to hear about that. And then you really listen to them. And the person starts to go, this this believer really cares about me and they're asking really great questions and they're actually waiting for the answer. Learn how to ask thoughtful questions. And then I'll end here and I'll ask everyone in our church to do this. I need to ask you to start taking small risks. I want you to take a risk this year, okay? Take a risk. I know this is, seems scary, what I'm asking you to do. Get used to the idea of that moment when it feels a little bit risky, going, okay, I trust you, Jesus. I'm just going to step into this. I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to, you know. Here's the problem. We read 1 Peter 3.15, and it's really easy to idealize it into this thing that almost never happens. So we read it, and we're like, this is great. Okay, I honor Christ the Lord as holy, and then what's going to happen is all these people are going to start asking me about my Christian faith, right? And they're going to be lining up next to my cubicle, like at the DMV. They're going to just be taking a number. Tell me about your Christian faith, and then I'm going to tell them about it, and they're going to be like, will you pray with me right now to receive Jesus? And it's just going to be like a Jesus assembly line. You know, I'm just knocking out Christians, and we think that's going to happen, and you know what? That's never going to happen. That's not going to happen. Sometimes you have to take a little risk. You got to step into it a little bit, even when stepping into it feels a little bit scary. Why would you take a risk? Because we follow a Savior who took a risk for us. You know, the whole context of Peter is suffering. Peter's saying, I get it. 
you're living in a you're living in a world where there's opposition to your Christian faith and there's some suffering. But never forget this. I'm going to put verse 18 up. Here's how Peter ended this section. He said, yeah, okay, but Christ suffered for you. You're not following a Savior who's asking you to do something that he himself has not already modeled. If you have to suffer a little bit, if you have to step into a situation that might get a little awkward or uncomfortable or where you'll get rejected, that's okay. Jesus suffered for your sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Amen? And so I'm calling you. Will you you take a risk in your life? Will you step out? Will you get used to that feeling? Invite someone to church. I read read a, a little fact this week that of the people in our community who've never been to church, there was like this poll that happened on Instagram, so it's totally factual. This poll, this woman did a poll, and she asked all these people who've never been to church, she said, if, 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 if someone who is a Christian invited you to church, would you go? And, her, and the two options were, I'm kind of curious, or heck no. Okay, it was something like that. 56% of the people said, I'm curious about that. 56%. I'm not a mathematician, but that, that tells me that if you invited two people to church, one of them would come. One of them would check it out. But it might be a little risky. It might be a little risky. So will you take a risk in your life? Let's get ready. River West, let's get ready. And I'm going to pray about that right now, and then we're going to worship. Will you bow your heads? Lord, we're thankful for practical things. We're thankful that your word is practical. And we're thankful, Lord, that sometimes we get challenged to do something new, to take a step, to to move forward in our Christian faith. And, And we're thankful, God, that that's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We're always growing. We're always learning. We're always trying new things to follow you. But even more than that, Lord, we're thankful, Jesus, that you suffered for us. In a moment, Lord, we'll sit and we'll hold in our hands a little piece of bread, a cracker, and a cup. And it's this beautiful reminder of your love for us. That you were willing, God, to send your one and only son to die for our sins, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. And so we celebrate, we say thank you, we put our hope again in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope that's within us, Lord. May it grow in us and become contagious, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.